Ready for the interview, interview, get a cue Live on the laptop, watch what I'm gonna do Welcome to the show, let them know we got a point of view Hey, yo, let's have a combo Say what you feel, be real, that's the motto Real talk, pronto, doctor, DPHD, hit the intro Hold up, wait, gotta be social Network global, a home for the locals Gotta be social, network global, a home for the locals all right, here we go. So, John, you were talking about that you were on. You've been on a lot of podcasts. So it was outside your comfort zone. And I was saying that you've, you've been putting in the reps, man, you mm-hmm. know? And so now it's probably more natural for you, right? I mean. Yeah, totally. So um, it's been, this book has been amazing for so many reasons, but one of the chief is it's really gotten me outside of my comfort zone. So I, you know, I'd been on a podcast or two before the, the book was being released, but I've probably been, I don't know, 25 in the past four months and yeah. on a lot of radio shows as well. And some of these radio shows can be the wild, wild west. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So those have been pretty fun. But, you know, what used to be outside of my comfort zone is now in my comfort zone, which I guess is the very definition of how people grow, right? Yes. Is, Yes. And, you know, if you think about it, as we're growing up, we're, you know, we're children, adolescents or young adults, you know, we're outside of our comfort zone a lot. And then what you see sometimes people get more ensconced in their careers yeah. is then they just kind of stay within their, you know, kind of within their, their, their bubble. And you, you can read these studies about how most scientific discoveries are made by people of a certain age and hmm. that you rarely see somebody in their 50s or 60s making major, you know, discoveries. And it's, it's not that they're any less intelligent. You may expect to go the other direction, but maybe they don't, you know, maybe they don't get outside their comfort zone and try new things and and fail. Who knows? Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of the inertia of life, um, is, you know, you kind of, you start cementing your behaviors as you get older and then you become less flexible or uh, malleable in your thoughts and ideas. Yeah. And yeah. in your ambitions, and that tends to be this kind of sludge that starts happening to build up. Yeah, and you, and you also become less flexible physically. I will yes. tell you, <laughs> I well, I'm 53, and you know, I I do yoga just enough that it feels bad every time. <laughs> and I know, and it just you know, there's certain things you should do. Yes, that you don't always do. And I'll tell you, we. I've had the pleasure of working with some some of my clients, and I'm in wealth management. So, working with some clients that were in their their 90s, and a commonality, and it's way too small a sample size for me to draw the conclusion yeah. which I'm about to draw, but I'm going to anyway. <laughs> is these three clients that were incredibly, you know, physically fit into their 90s, and one of them still alive, they they did like Pilates and yoga, and I'll tell you, one of them who is, I think he's 99 now, um, about. The last time I saw him uh, for breakfast about a, a year ago, you know, I watched him walk in from across the room, you know, way, way across the restaurant. And it wasn't until he got up close that you would have thought he was in his 90s. He walked like somebody that was in his 50s. Yeah. And it's because yeah. he had core strength and was flexible. And so that in, has inspired me to think I should do more yoga, but not to actually do it, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) To think think about doing it is, you know, what's interesting about that, John, is there's actually some excellent research on walking gait and speed in relation to uh, mortality. Oh, tell me more. Essentially that uh, kind of your faster gait, um, 
your more powerful walkers, your quicker walkers, there's a, a much larger correlation to a longer living versus people. You know, people is good. They kind of like shuffle. Yeah. And, oh. and there's not a lot of mobility and stability in the walk. It's a feebleness, essentially. But there's, there's, it's, it's an interesting correlation and with walking speed for people. Well, I'm going I'm to check that out. As, as you're aware, I write this uh, a few times a week blog called The Interesting yeah. Fact of the Day. And that sounds like a topic that would be a great blog post. It would be. And because also, like, you saw it in this person, like, mm-hmm. their, the way they moved was not indicative of your stereotypical person of that age. You yeah. See. Well, I mean, but in fact, I mean, um, it's it's actually not a stretch to say that you could stave off that type of mm-hmm. walking with just general exercise. I mean, we know that yeah. ex- actually there's great info on this too. Just like exercise is more beneficial than it is harmful for chronic disease, high blood pressure, all those things. The benefit of exercise is actually gets yeah. more and more beneficial the older you get because of all of the mechanisms that start changing in your body. I as believe it, it happens. So it's actually even more valuable as you age. Well, you know, and um, I'm in the midst of reading Outlive by Peter Atia. Oh, yeah. Dr. Peter Atia. Yes. Yeah. He's awesome, man. Yeah, he, he is. I've listened to him on podcasts and things and read some of his articles. And his, his book's great. But yeah. something that stuck out for me was his book. I just pulled it up. Is the, the mortality from a hip or femur fracture is staggering once you hit about the age of 65. Yes. It varies by studies, but ranges from 15 to 36% in one year, meaning that up to one third of people over 65 who fracture a hip are dead within a year. Yes. Wow. Isn't that crazy? And it just goes to the show. You got to keep that, uh, you, know, you got to do the strength training, including the core training and the yep. stability. And when you lift weights to do, you know, uh, uh, unweighted on one side and weighted on the mm-hmm. other and stand on one leg and do all these things. Um, yeah. And that leads to the shuffling. So, yeah. It really does. It's actually, that's why like in my business and fitness, there's so much emphasis now on mobility and stability training. Yeah. It's a big part of what I do with clients is a huge amount of hip work. Because often not no, that someone mm-hmm. uh, breaks their hip, you know, or that they fall and break their hip. It's often that something else happens in the mechanism of the hip, and then you fall and break oh, your hip okay. for that. Yeah. People think of it the opposite way. It fell, then break your hip. But my yeah. whole thing is people, if you think about it, as you age, you get further and further away from the ground. Further and further. You're a kid. You're always near the ground. Oh. As you become an adult, you have this affliction towards being on the ground. And then when you get older, you fear the ground completely because wow. if you fall, it's almost like, how am I going to get up That's, at that point? That right? is an interesting concept and it makes total sense. Right? Right. And I know there's that, you know, your ability to get up off the ground and how many su- supports that you need to get off yeah. the ground as an indicator of mortality. Yes. But yeah, if I guess if you practice getting up off the ground and especially if you can use no arms and elbows yes. or anything, that's better than, you know, a hand down and yeah. Wow, that is fantastic. Yeah. You start fearing the ground as you get older because you see the ground as like this negative thing like if I'm down there then I fell versus yeah. I'm down here cuz I want to be and I'm right. doing lots of different functional exercises on the ground and I'm getting up standing down the whole thing. So I wow. mean honestly it's really not rocket science. It's it's the hard part is the behavior aspect of it getting people to actually do this on a regular yeah. basis as they age. Wow. That's the difficulty. For it. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, this has inspired me 
Yes. To actually <laughs> adopt a consistent yoga practice. So, you know, I, I you know, I, I lift weights and I, I do, you know, what I've yeah. started doing is instead of just being like, oh, I'm going to be like the, 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 you know, the bro workout at the gym, you know, especially <laughs> yeah. um, which, which I've been, you know, I've, I've definitely done before. And you're like, oh, I'm going to put up this certain amount of weight. And my form yeah. is going to suck. And all those things is <laughs> I've been doing these Peloton strength classes, okay, which are totally like, you know, you're always doing, you know, you're, you're, if you're doing curls, you're doing it standing on one leg and you're doing sure. these rotational things and yeah. whatever. And I, and sometimes I don't even feel like I'm even lifting that much weight or doing that much work. And then like the next day I'm like, oh, that that yeah. actually works some stuff. So <laughs> yeah, it's like, I guess the functional strength, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it's basically, it's okay. It's like when I was growing, I'm 45 and I was growing up and thinking to myself, like, you know, you're doing bench press. What's the <laughs> functional value of bench pressing, you know, or even like, like a lot of kind of the bro workout, you said there's a lot of back squatting. I mean, it's really pointless. One, it's a lot of compression on your spine. Yeah. And two, it's like, all right. What, tell me a time when you're going to put like 300 pounds on your back. Yeah. yeah. You know? And it's like, you're never going to do that. Yeah. I mean, this is no situation that's happening. You're holding up a bridge or something. I mean, so like, you know? <laughs> yeah. I, you know, it's more of us like, what are you doing? How are you bending yeah. down, picking up things, dynamic resistance through dynamic movement, all that. Yeah. I think we're trying to move away from that, but there's still a large bro culture, you know, within that. Oh too. yeah. And, and I, and, and don't get me wrong, I do love some bro co- culture. So. <laughs> <laughs> I do, I do, I do love some bro co- culture. So all you bros out there, like I'm, yeah. I'm sort of with you sometimes. Yeah, yeah, it's fun. <laughs> you know, this is an aesthetic look. You know, it's this type of thing, but it it's is. often a very uneven look. Or it's like, hey, no cardio, just weightlifting. You know, yeah. have a nice, well-rounded program that allows you to be right. functional. It's really. It's the, you know, I think, you know, you talk about uncertainty, which I wanted to get into yeah. about that. And certainly um, you could apply a lot of these things to wealth management and finance. And I'm curious, and I've been thinking about this, like exercise, like physical activity and movement, people have a lot of uncertainty about what they should do and what's the right dosage and stuff. I would imagine there's probably a similar feeling when it comes to investments. Can you kind of take us through that? Yeah, like like I think people always feel like they're missing something, or there's they need to know more because they're 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 seeking a certainty which just doesn't exist, you know. Mm. And it's interesting. So uh, as you mentioned, talking about uncertainty, you know, my book's called "The Uncertainty Solution: How to Invest with Confidence in the Face of the Unknown." And I started writing it in the middle of the pandemic, you know summer of, of 2020. And I fi- finished it in the spring of 2022. And it took a little bit over a year to actually, you know, be published. It, it just was released in early May. And, you know, what's interesting is people said, you know, like last April and May, oh, I wet, I bet you wish this book was out right now, given how uncertain things are. And my response was, uh, no, I think in a year we'll still be feeling pretty <laughs> uncertain, you know, and I, I have no idea what's going to happen, but it's, it's this thing where we, we always feel it. And it's fascinating. You know, I, I mentioned, I've been on a lot of podcasts and a common question is, is things are incredibly, feel incredibly uncertain right now. And I'm like, yeah, and they will in a year and they did a year ago and they did <laughs> 10 years ago. And, and it's just yeah. our, our common human state is, is feeling uncertain because that's the world we live in. And really the point of my book, and it's, it's you know, it, it is an investing book, sort of. I mean, I've had people say that it's really more about 
you know, behavior and more psychology. It's not like classic psychology, but it really is about how to handle uncertainty and make better decisions and kind of feel better about un, un, uncertainty. So yeah, it's, uh, it's been fun. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think what's interesting too is, you know, you think of like volatility and things in the stock market and all that stuff. I think, you know, you, you get a lot of, uh, like a lot of my friends, it's kind of like the armchair stock market people, you know, it's like, mm -hmm. oh, you know, this, I'm going to invest in the cryptocurrency, all this and stuff, S&P 500, you know, all this stuff. I think to the, to the kind of average consumer, it could feel overwhelming yeah. to see all this stuff. But then you have the, almost the kind of democratization of investment vesting mm -hmm. happening too. Yeah. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that and how yeah, that's so you have the, like the Reddit boards, you know, and they, they yeah. you know, remember in the spring of 2021, you know, they were running up, uh, games, you know, and, 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 yeah. and, and everything. And same thing with crypto, you know, crypto got up to, I don't know what, $67,000 yeah. a coin in the, you know, it just seemed like it was, it was just going to go on forever. And a lot of people piled in and then, you know, it was way back down. And I think it's around 30,000 a coin right now. Um, so let me just say something real quick about crypto. I get asked about this a lot, yeah. both by clients and, you know, if I'm a speaker at a conference, the Q&A and things like that. Um, so let's just focus on Bitcoin for a second. So it's at, at about 30,000 a coin right now. And if, if you were to tell me, hey, guess what? I have a crystal ball. And in a year... Bitcoin will be at a thousand dollars a coin. It will have dropped precipitously. I'd go, okay, I'm not that surprised. But if you said it was going to be worth a hundred thousand a coin, I go, okay, yeah, I, I can see that happening. And I wouldn't be that surprised. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think that's how a lot of people in the industry feel about it. And that's you know Bitcoin, which is somewhat more stable than you know a lot of the other ones. Yeah. And, and it doesn't mean that it doesn't have a bright future or crypto in general doesn't have a bright future. It just means that there's, you know, a lot of volatility and a lot of speculation that's going on. So what we advise our clients is if you're interested in crypto, um, you know, don't go all in. <laughs> you know, make, this, <laughs> make this a small portion of your portfolio, uh, almost more like entertainment. Yeah. Um, and, and I do think that blockchain technology is important and it, it very well may have a, a good future. I mean, it's just really a way of keeping a database, but instead of centralized, it's decentralized. Yeah. And, you know, you can have things called smart contracts or smart transactions on a, on a blockchain. And if you're going to do that on a blockchain, it would make sense that you, that you transfer value using a token, which is a, you know, a, a form of, of cryptocurrency. So I, I think there is a potential business case beyond just the, you know, Bitcoin mainly has been, you know, there's scarcity to it. So often things that are scarce have value. You know, I, I think there can only be, you know, 21 million coin ever, yeah. coins ever. So, you know, I think scarcity can create value, but sometimes that's false value. Yeah. So, yeah, I think there's, you know, I, I write in my book an entire chapter on trends and trends are problematic. I mean, you know, they're, they're tough to spot in the beginning, um, but when you do spot one, Sometimes they change course and you don't know how they're going to turn out. And then even if you spot one relatively early and you think you know how it's going to turn out and it does turn out that way, then there's a question of who do you invest in, right? Yeah. Um, and, and there's this concept of, you know, the the pioneer versus the fast follower. And yeah. excuse my... Uh, oh, it's all good. It's the city, yeah, right? so I'm in, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm in St. Louis, Missouri. We, you know, it sounds like a real city here. Um, exactly. Yeah, exactly. But... But basically, you, you have this, this situation where market pioneers end up 
long term, only having a very small market share. A study out of USC found it was about 7% on average. And yet they have this very high failure rate. You know, these market pioneers fail at a, a you know, 40, 50% rate. Whereas the fast followers, and by fast, it's usually these are companies that, that get into the space about 10 years later, have a much larger market share and a much lower failure rate. So mm. you know, that would if you think about it, you know, there was my space, my uh, space and Friendster, and then there was yeah. Facebook and then, you know, Instagram and, and TikTok and things like that seemed to be taken over from, yeah. uh, you know, from, uh, you know, Facebook, you had Netscape to internet Explorer, and now you right. have Google Chrome. And so y- you have these different things that happen where as, as an investor or how you should think of trends, isn't that you, you have to be first in. And even if you are first in, in spotting it, you're probably not going to pick the eventual winner. I mean, Google (laughs) was the 21st search engine. Like just keep that as a mental model in your mind. Whenever you think about investing in trends, if Google was the 21st search engine, you know, what does that say about other industries? And we've seen it over and over. We've seen it with automobiles and TVs and mobile phones. And, you know, we may see it with AI, maybe chat GPT and open AI won't be you know, the eventual big player in AI. So, right. you know, who, who knows? I mean, it's so fascinating because I think because you see the dominance of a platform or a search engine, you think, oh, this has to be the genesis of it. Yeah. And in fact, it's not. It's one of just a plethora of those. Yeah. And this one happened to become the major player in that. I, I want to stay on crypto a little bit. What are your thoughts about uh, regulation in cryptocurrency? Yeah, well, I think it, it it was, and if you think about the entire genesis of the idea of, of blockchain and the crypto, it was, you know, we're going to have these decentralized databases where um, they're really going to be self-regulating. You know, you're going to have the situation where either, you know, you have you have uh, a transaction basically cost um, where, you know, that's how people earn money mining coins, or you have a proof of stake. So if you own a certain amount of some of these other cryptocurrencies, you know, you, you have the, this ability to uh, enforce and it, it made a lot of sense. And it was like, okay, it can be, you know, a lot of people that don't think we should have gone off the gold standard or, you know, or leery right. of, of government regulation. We're all like, okay, well we should have it completely decentralized and those will be great. And it's this brave new world and we're true believers. But I think what the industry seems to be coming back around to is um, maybe being completely decentralized and not having any central regulation is harmful. So it has been, mm. not to use the same phrase again in a 10 minute period, but the wild, wild west and, mm-hmm. and, and, and crypto and where some of you know, the major players where people were putting trust in um, you know, were really harmful. FTX being the, you know, the poster child, there's, right. there's a lot of right. other ones as well. So I think the industry is coming back around to, you know, maybe there should be regulation. Um, so it seems like that's going to be the, you know, the path. And that's definitely what the SEC has been, you know, go- going after and, and, and saying. And as much as it would have been fun to have this utopian ideal <laughs> of, you know, this decentralized, all these decentralized yeah. databases that are self-regulating, uh, it's, it's, it's looking like that that's not, you know, <laughs> that's not going to end up being reality. Um, and I know that's, you know, for some true believers, that's, that's a really tough pill to, yeah. to, to, to swallow. Um, but you know, that, I guess that's the world we live in. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I, I do think there's some real power in having decentralized databases. I mean, in financial services here, you know, you know, we have to wire money places and just the amount of time and effort and steps it takes to wire money. You'd think it'd be instantaneous. It's not. Right. Right. It's, and just, just the way money moves and stocks trade and, 
you know, financial transactions take place. I think there could be some real power moving on to, you know, a, a blockchain. Um, it just seems like we're a ways away from that still. So yeah. we'll, we'll see where it heads. That's, it does seem like a ways away from that. But it made me think of like, when you say true believers, like uh, kind of coming to grips with that. Is it is it part of the human condition to maybe swing one way or the other really far and go, let's just decentralize everything? I mean, yeah. not realizing that, hey, not looking at the future of this, is this may actually not be beneficial. Yeah. It's like, I feel like we always, like humans, we never swing towards like a reasonable future. It's yeah. always like very far over one way or the other. And yeah. then we're like, oh, we made a mistake. We do have yeah. to have some regulation or some parameters oh, here. You know? I think that's spot on. I think it is human nature to over overshoot. And, and I think also, I mean, we'd, we'd love to have this idea that, you know, we see this in investing where, you know, you'd love to have this idea that all these people that have all this education and yeah. are, you know, chartered financial analysts and have all this education and fancy MBAs and everything that, you know, th they're part of the system and they don't see the truth and that you could have somebody mm. that comes along that hasn't been trained in those things. And because they have this, this separate third party view, they're able to kind of break the code and, you know, beat the market. Or you see right. this in the health industry too, that there's, you know, some supplement that the yeah. FDA won't approve, but this supplement <laughs> is going to, you know, be, be amazing or some alternative medicine things. And I'm not saying there's not some validity to all those things, but there, you know, you'd love to say, you know, the, the existing system is flawed and here's this new and better way of doing something. And that's really exciting. And I get excited about some of those things too. It can be yeah. extremely exciting. And then, then you start having some FOMO and you know, fear <laughs> missing out. And so, yeah, I think things, you know, shift and, and, you know, we'd love to be, you know, we love to, um, you know, criticize experts. And I have an entire chapter in my book criticizing experts in the financial industry. So I'm not, I'm not against <laughs> criticizing experts. I, I definitely uh, do that, but you know, there is some role for expertise and, and for having adults in the room and, yeah. and again, to have some regulation and some consumer protections, I, I think we're finding um, might be important. And I wasn't a true believer in, in crypto thinking that we could have this, this unregulated alternate system, but I was sort of excited about the idea of a decentralized, unregulated yeah. database that has this ability to self-regulate. So, you know, I have some disappointment thinking that maybe we're going this more traditional route of of having, you know, at least SEC regulation over yeah. cryptocurrencies and exchanges and, you know, then potentially Congress coming along with some other additional regulation mm -hmm. with the thought of, you know, you're going to help protect people because a lot of people have lost a lot of money. Right. Right. A, a megaton. I mean, and there's so many documentaries money. out there about it and, uh, you know, um, alleged scams and uh, crimes and stuff. It just feels like it's just all over the place. And I wonder what would make it less volatile and more acceptable for a piece. So it's just not such a huge yeah. volatility. Yeah. You know, in every early industry, though, you can expect these sort of wild swings in volatility. Yeah. And, and in my book, I talk about the early automobile industry. So in the first 20 years of the 20th century, 775 U.S. automobile companies went into business. And during the same time period, 600 went out of business. Wow. And so there's this huge churn. And, you know, we saw it in the production of TVs. Like there were, you know, hundreds of manufacturers of TVs over history. And now we're down to 10 manufacturers provide <laughs> Um, you know, nearly 80% of TVs and cell phones. So there were, you know, all these cell phone manufacturers. And today in the US, two, Apple and Samsung, 
are 78% of the market, right? So right. in every industry, you have all these startups and these new businesses, you know, kind of churning through and the new technologies. And then as an industry matures, it settles down. And we're seeing this with crypto where there's these, you know, hundreds of cryptocurrencies and all these different, you know, cryptocurrencies are all promoting something different. Right. And, you know, here's why our, you know, here's why Solana is different and better than Ethereum. And, you know, you have, you know, some that are just ridiculous like Dogecoin, but, you know, you have all these different <laughs> cryptocurrencies on these different platforms wanting to do different things. And then even beyond the cryptocurrencies, you know, you have these different blockchains and private blockchains that companies are trying. And, and I forget the companies, but there's been a few big companies that tried to have a private blockchain and then they ended up shutting them down. So different thing, people are going to try different things. And, you know, same thing for AI, like everybody's, you know, hopefully experimenting with chat GBT. It's amazing. And now there's Google Bard, but there's all these other AI for, you know, different things. There's specialized ones for writing code and other ones for, you know, creating TikToks. And, um, you know, we're talking to our, uh, you know, tech consulting people and what we'll be moving to probably is AI that we train ourselves on our stuff, right? Yeah. So because of privacy concerns, we're not going to put client stuff out on a public AI, but how do we bring an AI within our own walls? Well, actually in our own cloud yeah. to help us be more efficient about how we serve our clients. So it'll be a private in our walled garden AI, but we're going to see AI, you know, again, what we'll see is this creative destruction and this churning through these how AI is, is used. And it's just the pattern of what happens early in industries. And so what we've been seeing in crypto, I think is to be expected, even though it's a, you know, wildly new, you know, technology. Yeah. I mean, new being that the, you know, what the, the paper came out in what, 07 or something. So it's been a while around for a while, but uh, you know, in the grand scheme of things, a pretty new technology. Yeah. It's interesting. I want to go back to one thing and then move forward on something you said. So one, like let's take for something like uh, Dogecoin, which seemed to have kind of this meteoric rise, but yeah. in a kind of a weird kind of, let's just makes shit up type of thing, <laughs> you know? What it is. <laughs> what's the, yeah, let's give kind of your larger view of something like a Dogecoin, um, which is certainly not uh, like um, the major players, but why is this in, enthralled so many people, this yeah. concept of Dogecoin? And yeah. what's the future of something like this? So in, um, there, there's an author named Charles McKay, and he wrote a book in 1841 called Extraordinary Popular Delusions in the Madness of Crowds. <laughs> I love that title. Man. Isn't it amazing? It's That's this fantastic great. book. And what he does in it, and it's a very long detailed book, and he goes in the book and he talks about all these things that became all the rage. And again, it was written in 1841. And you know, he even talks things like, you know, the, the rise of like uh, witch hunts. Mm. And, you know, in the United States, we think about, oh, the Salem witch trials. But, right. you know, in the entire Salem witch trials, uh, that, you know, that history, there was 18 people tragically put to death. But that pales into comparison to the approximate 500,000 accused witches that were put to death in Europe. So there was this mm. huge, huge thing. But, you know, one thing he talks about, is, which I think is a great example is, and I, I mentioned a bit in my book, is um, the Dutch tulip craze, which, which occurred in the, the early uh, 1600s. And for whatever reason, people in um, the Netherlands started speculating on tulip bulbs. And so 
it became within a few years where a single tulip bulb would trade for more money than a laborer made in an entire year. So you mm. started having just these, you know, rich people at first started, you know, trading these toilet bulbs. And then, you know, common people did, people took out debt, they poured all their money into these toilet bulbs. And they had this just meteoric rise, whereas, you know, over a few year time period, they gained thousands and thousands of percent. And people, at least on paper, had made all this money from tulip bulbs. But yet there was no intrinsic value to tulip bulbs other than that they're, right. you know, pretty, you know, when they you know, blossom into, into tulips. So it was kind of this greater fool theory that everybody was watching everybody else watch everybody else. And they were watching people, other people getting rich. And they said, I want to get rich too. And it seemed completely normal to be putting your money into something that had no intrinsic value because other people valued it. But then at some point the fever broke and it started going down and then it collapsed and it, it, it created an economic depression in the Netherlands and it wiped out tons of people, like all their life savings. And it's an important model to keep in mind because we see this repeated over and over again in history. We saw it some with the dot-com stocks back in the, you know, the, the, the late 90s into, into 2000. Um, and, and it explains some things like, you know, the run-up in um, GameStop and AMC yeah. and, you know, people seeing people get rich and it's the greater fool theory. And I think for some cryptocurrencies, that's the case. And it's, it's Dogecoin. It absolutely is. It was started as a joke and, you know, gained notoriety, you know, have, have people like Elon Musk tweeting yeah. about it and, and people saw it go up. And when you see something go up and other people getting rich, especially without having to, you know, put any effort into it, then more people put money in. And it's an example of, you know, really in investing in the economy, it's what's known as a complex adaptive system. So you have intelligent actors that are observing what's happening and they're watching everybody watch everybody else. And there's feedback loops and it, it changes behavior. And, you know, I, I write about this in my book too. It's, it's toilet paper hoarding during the pandemic. So right. again, if like we're sitting here, you know, it's 2019 and I'm like, Hey, guess what? There's a pandemic coming. What do you think you need to stock up on? I mean, it's probably things like, Oh, I'm going to have a lot of food like beans and water mm -hmm. and, you know, beer or right. whatever you yeah. want to have going into the pandemic. Right. And, or non-perishable items. Yeah. And, yeah. Non-perishable items. And, you know, maybe you say, oh, I want to make sure I have toilet paper, but like, it's not like you're going to be like, I'm going to go buy, you know, 50 packages of toilet paper, which people did, but whatever triggered it, whenever people started buying toilet paper, which was probably the first people that did it, you know, arguably irrational. Right. But once it started, and once you started seeing empty shelves, it became rational to try to buy as much toilet paper as you could because you right. didn't know how long it was going to last. And I thought it was completely bonkers. But in right. April of 2020, you know, in the middle of lockdown, I went to Walgreens to get a prescription and there was one package of toilet paper on the shelf and I bought it. And I said to the clerk, I said, I know I'm being part of the problem and not a part of the solution. I'm so sorry. We have plenty of toilet paper at home. Yeah. She looked at me like, you know, what are you talking about? Get your, you know, potential COVID breath and, you know, move on, you know. Right, right, and right. But, but that's what happened. And, and this is how we interact with each other all the time in, in investing and, and in the, even in the real world is we're all watching each other watch each other. We're making, taking individual actions that may seem rational, that roll up into completely bonkers system-wide effects. Yeah. And you know that is part of the concern with some of these and maybe all of the cryptocurrencies. I mean, if you think about it, why does Bitcoin have any value other than the yeah. fact that people say it does? 
I mean, it was a brilliant <laughs> paper. The, the Satoshi paper, you know, brilliant. And the whole concept of blockchain, brilliant. But why does it have any value? And, you know, as, you know, a year or two ago, I wrote in my blog, there's this painting that is supposedly done by Leonardo da Vinci called the Salvatore Mundi. Okay. And so this painting was bought in an auction, you know, like 60 years ago, 70 years ago, something like that for like $200. And it was recognized that it was in da Vinci style, but it was thought it was a, a copy or a, a student. Um, and then um, decades later, it was bought by some collectors for $10,000. And they thought, you know, we think this painting might have been done by a student of da Vinci. So it probably has some value and mm -hmm. maybe may have some educational value. So they went to restore it and they uncovered reasons to think it was an original da Vinci. So there's still some debate about it. And so then a few years ago, it sold at auction for $450 million. So think Jeez. about this. O over, over a single lifetime, it sold for $200, $10,000, and $450 million. It's the same painting. If you hung it on the <laughs> wall, I mean, it looked a little different restored, but if you mm -hmm. hung it on the wall, it's still the same painting. So it's like, what gives that value? And what gives it value is da Vinci's one of the most extraordinary humans that ever lived. There's only 20 surviving paintings. So right. this becomes one of 20 instead of one of thousands of copies, right? Or, you know, uh, hundreds that are done by, by students. So, you know, why is that painting valuable when it's the same painting? And it's kind of creepy, actually. It's not even, yeah. you know, something, it's not like it's, you know, wh why is it so, so valuable? And it just, it brings back this idea, like what gives something its value? Part yeah. of it can be scarcity. So Bitcoin says we're only going to have 21 million coins. So it creates the scarcity, but you know, you know, why do you care? Like I could be like, I'm going to limit the amount of, you know, whatever, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to limit the amount of the blog posts I'm going to do. I'm only yeah. going to do a hundred blog posts ever. Like, you know, are people all of a sudden going to be like auctioning off my blog posts? <laughs> so, so it, it's just interesting. Um, yeah. No, it's very interesting. I think that the scarcity, scarcity drives up the demand for it. It's it just I'm just curious about it because I look at it and I go, well, what's the functionality of this? That's my that's always my question. What's the function of something like a the painting thing is very interesting because I look I go, oh, it's just a picture, you know. Like I, someone but someone else sees this as this monumental, hugely valuable, monetary thing, and then someone else like me goes, I don't know, why would I spend that much on something? I'm like I'm just looking at. You know, but it, it everybody has different values for different things and what they see. And maybe the art aspect is a lot of times art, you know, it tends to appreciate yeah. after people die. Yeah. And then, yeah. you know, there's a That's, whole thing about that, it, where some things depreciate, you know, during the cycle of it. You know? Well, I mean, there's this brand new thing happening where this triptych by Francis Bacon, of course, very famous painter. You may yeah. have heard about this. It's, it's yes. worth about supposedly $55 million and it's going to be there's going to be initial public offering. So you can buy, you know, shares of this painting now with the hopes that it appreciates, yeah. which is really just other people thinking that other people will think it's going to be worth more in the future. That's how, painting, <laughs> right. Right. you know, appreciates. And it's interesting. If you look at the triptych, I don't even like it. Like I wouldn't even hang it on my wall. I think it's completely yeah. creepy and strange. I mean, Francis Bacon was sort of a bizarre painter, you know? And so I don't even like the painting. At least I like the Salvatore Mundi. Uh, That's but, right. But, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of bizarre. And if you think about crypto and like what use does it have, you know, right now 
not much as we can see that with the the crypto winter and kind of the crash that we saw happen last yeah. year especially in the wake of FTX it didn't really cause any economic harm outside the crypto industry right. so if you think about the crisis in 0809 i mean there's a lot of different factors but the subprime mortgage market which was a small fraction it was about 4% of the mortgage market you know, it was the impetus or the catalyst of this, you know, financial crisis. And you can see that, you know, with Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, you know, these two, you know, decently large regional, but one, not yeah. one of the major player banks, these banks caused basically a mini banking crisis, just these yeah. two, not huge banks. Whereas you have, you know, the second largest currency ex or crypto exchange be labeled as a fraud and go under and there's not these wide rippling effects, which shows right now, at least, cryptocurrency hasn't had a big relation to the the real economy, as I, I would say. It doesn't mean it won't sure. in the future. I mean, I don't know what the path of cryptocurrencies are. I own a little bit more as fun. Right. I, I don't know if it's going to be a big thing or not. I just don't know. Yeah. You know, what's interesting, I'm thinking about this too, is do you think that this is kind of another turn, but I think still in the financial sector, if you look at it and the economy, like commercial real estate seems mm. to be something that I feel like there's could be a pretty big domino effect here coming very soon. That is a huge, <clears throat> huge concern. So yeah, you have all, all these office buildings, especially in big cities like New York and San Francisco, yeah. that their vacancy rates have just plummeted, but we haven't seen a huge effect yet because you know a, a lot of these companies that aren't using the space are still having to pay rents. Right. So what will happen is is when they don't renew their leases and it really starts impacting negatively the, um, the, the building owners. And then you have interest rates a lot higher. So when they go to refinance, they have the double whammy of, right. um, you know, I don't, I'm not making that much money on this building anymore. And my, you know, interest costs are going to, you know, triple or whatever it is. Yeah. We could see a huge domino effect coming from, you know, commercial real estate. And I've been reading a lot about this and you, yeah. you kind of wonder, you know, is this a slow moving train wreck that is really going to cause huge problems or domino effects? Or can you fall back on the idea that really the huge things that have big impact are the things that you don't really see coming? Mm. So it's, you know, like 08, 09, you know, not everybody saw that coming. Um, you know, people didn't see this, this banking, this most recent banking right, crisis. Right. I mean, you, we, we all kind of felt like, oh, you know, the banking, the banking issue has been solved, you know, basically there, with all these tough regulations after 809, banks have to keep more capital, higher quality capital. They can't make all the sort of speculative loans they were making before their, their asset quality, their loan quality is super high, right? So if you have more capital, more liquidity, you know, higher, uh, uh, loan, you know, loan quality, less risk, you know, the banking sector is good. And then what you get out of the left field is the thing that brought Silicon Valley bank down in essence was that the value of the treasury securities they owned dropped in value because of the rise in interest rates. Right. So they, their risk-free asset, the, the highest quality asset supposedly you can own dropped in value which caused them to need to raise money. And once they needed to raise money, it caused a run on the bank. And similar thing at Signature, Signature Bank. So it, you know, it kind of came out of the blue. Like, like nobody was expecting there to be banking problems. I mean, yeah. you, know, you know, we even have a, 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 you know, clients that have invested in funds that mainly invest in banks and did not hear this in any commentaries, did not hear this from these experts in banking. And it kind of came out of the blue. So it seems like those 
things that are unexpected tend to have the bigger effect. So my hope is, which is just a hope, I have no 100% basis <laughs> for it, is that when you see something coming, and it's going to be coming over time, that there's ways to you know mitigate the effect. I mean, not saying that it won't be big pain for a lot of building owners or yeah. even you know their lenders, but hopefully, you know, it's going to happen over time. We see it coming. Hopefully there's ways to mitigate it, but don't misinterpret me. I'm not saying that it's going to be okay. Yeah. I'm just giving a, a ray of hope for what seems to be an intractable problem. Yeah. And well, humans are pretty bad at predicting the future. Mm. Although we like, like to believe we're really on top of it. I mean, the reality is we have a pretty poor track record of predicting what is actually the reality of something 20, 30, 40 years down the line. Oh, and that unexpected that stuff is part of life. Like yeah. you always, it's like the, and it can be good and bad. Like some, like a lot of the best things in my life have been unexpected, very unexpected. But you could also say that about the other side, the worst things have yeah. been unexpected too. And I think you can apply that same concept to, to that aspect of things too. And whether it's financial yeah. banking, it's like, well, we have a good projection system here, but it's the thing you don't see coming is usually the thing that you just just really puts you on your knees kind of you know yeah a book i'm reading right now is called the good life um or what makes a good life something like that uh it is uh written by the current director and associate director of the of this harvard study on uh, what makes a good life and happiness maybe mm. you've heard of this study before it was started in 1938 and they uh, followed the interviewed and followed the lives of uh hundreds of sophomores from Harvard University, okay. but then also a, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people uh, that didn't go to Harvard from Boston of about the same age. And so what they would do is they gave them all these questionnaires, they got their medical records and, you know, every, every few years they would interview them. And their goal was to see, you know, what makes a meaningful life, what things make people happy and fulfilled versus what doesn't. And the study's still going on. It's been going on for 84 years. Amazing. And they're now um, working with 1,300 of these people's descendants because most of the people in the study, almost all of them are, are dead now. And so this book is about what they've learned by observing these you know, hundreds and hundreds of lives over time. And a point that they made in the book is the biggest effect on people's lives and like their outcomes, both positive and negative, are those unexpected things. Mm. And that you can't just take somebody's life when they're like, oh, you're going to Harvard, you know, so you're, you know, you're going to have this amazing life and they make certain predictable life choices. But then there's the things yeah. that come out of the blue, both good and bad that have the biggest effect. So based on 84 years of data, your intuition or things that you've read are spot on that it's the unexpected that, that have the biggest effects. In, in fact, I did... Um, Related to this point, I did this, uh, again, a, a blog post. Again, my, my blog's interesting fact of the day, so it's just random things. But there was a study that looked at both positive and negative things that happened to people's lives that happened at least two years prior. So what they'd say to these, these study participants is think of something that happened in your life that happened more than two years ago, something that was very positive, and then something that was very negative. And the negative things were things like, getting divorced, getting cheated on, losing their job, having a loved one die. I mean, just, you know, being injured, having a disease, like horrible things. Right. And then the positive things, you know, kind of the, the flip side. And then they asked them, okay, looking back at it now, how intense are your feelings of either positivity on the good things or negative 
negativity on the negative things. And then how meaningful are they? Like how big of an impact has it had on the meaning that you have taken from mm-hmm. this? And what they found is the negative things looking back don't seem that negative anymore. The intensity is not that negative. And they were by far the most meaningful experiences. Mm. So people were finding like a disease or an injury, why horrible experience at the time, they actually got a lot of meaning out of, or even yeah. sometimes the death of a, a of a loved one or being fired to look back on. And I'll tell you, so like my freshman year, I went to Texas Christian University and my I made a 1.8, then a 2.4. And I was on academic scholarship. And when I lost my scholarship, my parents yanked me. And at the time it was this horrible experience. I was embarrassed. I failed. I felt horrible. But I moved on. It was this amazing, like looking back, it was one of the most formative, meaningful yeah. experiences in my life. Like I went to University of Missouri, did better, met my wife, changed how I view myself, changed how I, I viewed you know work and diligence. I mean, it was this amazing thing. And I think everybody has that sort of story. Yeah. I mean, for sure. I mean, I think of, I'm thinking about stuff in my life. I'm like, so true. Like, but in the time you feel like it's such a bad thing. Like you feel like it's just the worst. Right. And you just, you feel like, man, how am I going to get out of this? The trajectory of my life is just, you just don't know the future. That goes back to my thing. You can't predict. We're terrible at it because there's too many variables that you can't see. You can't predict those variables, you know? Yeah, and, it's, and they and they come out of the blue, and you're like, "Where did that come from?" Both positive and and, yeah. and negative. And you know, really, again, just to I'll talk my book for here for a second. That's kind of the premise of my book. So it's the uncertainty solution, and I talk about you know why we've evolved to dislike uncertainty, why our quest for certainty is a primary human motive, and then the book is about how to deal better with uncertainty with an investment slant, but in life in general. And really, the, the you know the answer I've found is is it's not that you can gain greater certainty, but you can focus on things that you do know and you can control. So yeah. my, my book has 35 of what are known as mental models. So they're, they're things that once you study and you know, you can pull out to help you make better decisions or have you know, better behavior more um, you know, in the face of, of dealing with, with uncertainty. And it's been really well received both as an investment book and um, and otherwise, and my goal with the book is really to help people have less worry and anxiety about yeah. uncertainty, and especially in investing, that you don't have to know the future to invest well, which is good because we, as you point out so so eloquently, we can't know the future. Can't know. So it's better to accept that and invest as if you don't know, and stop trying to find experts that you think are going to tell you the future because they don't know. <laughs> I mean, they definitely don't know. No, <laughs> but they, I think people really... make a business out of believing that they know and then yeah, getting experts, people to follow you know, that. You know? Yeah. Experts, the more erudite ones know they don't know. And, yeah. um, but many of them actually think they, they do know. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, I hit my book, why they continue to make predictions when they're bad at it. <laughs> it's, pretty, it's pretty, it's pretty fascinating. Um, yeah. and, and the reasons that, that they give for it. Yeah. So, man, I got to tell you what, John, this has been very enlightening and, uh, I want to, um, Make sure I'm respecting your time, and uh, I'm sure you're busy. You got things to do, but thank you for giving me some of your time. I, there's oh, a lot of value in that for me. Yeah, and that. well, likewise, I enjoyed our our conversation. It's been uh, it's been.
been been fun. I could talk to you for hours. I know. I actually have so many questions. I'm like, all right, I have to talk to John another time because I was just yeah. there's other things that I just rattling in my brain. Yeah. And scenarios and different philosophies. Yeah. But please tell everyone here how they can connect to your blog and all the different information. Yeah. So my blog can be found at John M as in Michael Jennings.com. John M. Jennings, all one word dot com. And yeah, so there's a little bit more about me and my book. And up in the menu, it says the IFOD, the IFOD. Um, so that's my, you know, that's that's my blog. And um, yeah, I just write on various interesting things. You know, I've recently written on, um, you know, why don't planes, why aren't planes getting any faster since the 1950s? Airliners right. haven't gotten any, you know, gotten any faster. And, you know, um, just various different things that are hopefully interesting. So I'd love to have more subscribers. I have a few thousand, so yeah. Yeah, keep pumping it out there for sure. Thank you, John, so much for your time, and uh, we'll be in touch. Right, cool, thanks.